Scripture reading this morning will be in Luke chapter 20. If you would all stand for the reading of God's word, we'll be looking at verses 41 down through verse 44. <clears throat> Luke chapter 20, reading verses 41 to 44. But he said to them, <clears throat> How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Father, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that you would bless our time together, and uh, we commit it into your hands, that you would teach us and instruct us in what you have for us today from the, the word of God that we study. In the name of Christ that we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, this morning we're looking at the last portion of a back-and-forth exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. We really started this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, back in verse 20, where the scribes and the chief priests began to send spies with their trick questions, uh, trying to trip Jesus up in what he says. And so they came first and they asked Jesus if they, as Jews, ought to be paying taxes to the Roman government. And uh, after Jesus answered that question, the Sadducees asked that really bizarre question about the resurrection and the lady who was married seven times and all that uh, really confusing question. Uh, Jesus, uh, again, saw through their deceit and was able to answer them, without giving them what they wanted. And so, after outsmarting them twice, now Jesus turns the tables on them. He asks them a question. Okay, so they've been asking him these trick questions, trying to get him in trouble. And so now he turns it around on them and asks them a question. <clears throat> Verse 41, he says to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, these religious leaders were supposed to be uh, experts in the Bible, so he asks them a question about the Messiah. Uh, there's a lot to explain in those few verses, but let's begin there with the first part of the question. How is it that the scribes say the Messiah, or the Christ, is David's son? Uh, this, of course, was the common thought of the day, so much so that at times people referred to uh, the Messiah as simply the son of David. Everybody knew who they were talking about when they said, oh, the son of David. Uh, that was a, a pseudonym, if you will, for the Christ or the Messiah. The title son of David was used to refer to the descendant of David who would come one day and save Israel from their enemies, and then he would reign as king forever. This was the promise of the Old Testament of the Messiah. And when Jesus came along, people began to wonder if perhaps he was this coming descendant of David, if he was the promised Messiah. After all, of course, he was performing signs and miracles all over Israel. And uh, so they thought, well, maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. Uh, we can see this attitude back in Matthew 12, for example. Jesus, right after casting a demon out of a man, it says, The people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And there, of course, they're referring to the Messiah, the Christ that they knew was going to be a descendant of King David. And so Matthew uh, 21 tells us, earlier this very week, this is when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. Uh, you remember the crowds went before him and, and they followed him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So this was uh, the common way of referring to this promised Messiah who was to come. And at this time, the most people in Jerusalem, the common people, were convinced that Jesus was the one they had been waiting for. Uh, this was the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus, in his question uh, from our text, he brings up an interesting dilemma that the Jews apparently hadn't really considered 
Uh, if Jesus is, or I'm sorry, if the Messiah is a descendant of the great King David uh, back in the Old Testament, why does David in the book of Psalms refer to his descendant as his Lord? Uh, that seems a little weird. And the text Jesus uses to demonstrate this point is Psalm 110. By the way, this is the uh, passage quoted in the New Testament uh, more than any other passage in the Old Testament, meaning that Jesus and the apostles quote from Psalm 110 uh, all throughout the New Testament. You'll see this. But let's look at it now. Back in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, notice the difference in capitalization of the two lords in verse 1. We've pointed this out before, but it's been a while. Maybe you've forgotten there. Uh, when you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, uh, that is the Hebrew name for God. Uh, the Jews had this tradition of not uttering the name God uh, aloud. They thought it was disrespectful. And so they would just spell it differently, basically, as a clue. It would take a long time to explain in Hebrew. Uh, but when you see Lord in all caps, that is the name Yahweh, God's personal name. When you see Lord with the lowercase letters after the L, uh, that is simply the Hebrew word for Lord or Master. Okay, so the first one is actually God's name, uh, Lord in all caps. The second one just means Lord or Master. And so this is saying, if you were to translate it literally, Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see the difference between the two lords there in verse 1. And the Jews understood that the one Yahweh is speaking to here is the Messiah. Uh, he is the one that God would set up as king and subdue all of his enemies under his feet. And so the Jews of Jesus' day would have said, this is God speaking uh, to the son of David, to Christ, who will reign as king. The problem with this is that David calls this person my Lord, right? He refers to him as my Lord or my master. Uh, Yahweh says to my Lord, this is you know, David speaking here. And so this means that the Messiah is superior to David. Now, how can that be? How can the Messiah be both David's descendant and yet also his Lord? This is the question that Jesus is pressing the Jewish leaders to answer. But of course, they couldn't. They had no response to this question. That Jesus asked them. Matthew 22 says, After this question was posed by Jesus, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They gave up at that point. Game over. Jesus wins. Uh, they had no answer to this. Now, let's see if we can answer the question. And I'll admit right up front, the only reason we can is because we have the New Testament. They didn't have this. Uh, throughout the uh, Jesus and the apostles' writings, they explain things that are only hinted at in the Old Testament that the Jews had at the time. Uh, the Old Testament has been described as a fully furnished room with the lights dimly lit. And so in the New Testament books, the lights are turned on fully, and you can uh, see things clearly that were only hinted at before. First of all, we must acknowledge that the Jews were right in their understanding that the Messiah was, in fact, a descendant of David. Uh, this is true, it's just not the whole story. But you notice the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, so yes, Jesus is a descendant of David. In fact, in the subsequent verses, Matthew sketches that out for us in detail. Uh, you'll get your Bible reading in for the week here. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, uh, Judah the father of Perez, uh, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, uh, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, the, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, 
Abijah, the father of Asaph. I think you get the picture. Let's fast forward to verse 16. Uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, yes, if you trace through those 15 verses or so, you can see that, that Jesus is a direct descendant of King David in the Old Testament. That's uh, really the main point of those lists of names there in Matthew, is to show you that Jesus is a descendant of King David, because the Messiah was said to be, uh, in the Old Testament, of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. And so it's clear on the first page of Matthew's gospel, yes, Jesus is the son of David. He is a descendant of King David. Uh, but the Messiah is more than just a human being descended from David's line. And this is what uh, is, explains the Psalm 110 question Jesus brings up. Not only was the Messiah, Jesus, a descendant of King David, but he was also God. This is the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ, that Jesus is both human and divine. Uh, he was God in human flesh. By the way, this is why uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is so important, because that's how we understand Jesus not to be simply a human like the rest of us, but that he is, in fact, God taking on a human body. And so Matthew starts his gospel by showing us the humanity of Jesus, tracing his, you know, his roots uh, down from King David. John's gospel starts in chapter 1 by showing us the deity of Christ, uh, the other side of the coin here. Verse 1 of John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Dropping down to verse 14, it says, The Word, this one who was with God and is God, became flesh. And dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus the Messiah, he is the Word. He was with the Father from the beginning. He is the eternal God who created all things. And this Word, God himself, uh, becomes a human being and lived in our world. And so, yes, the Messiah is the Son of David, but he's also the Son of God. Yes, the Messiah is David's descendant, but he is also David's Lord. He is God and man. This was something the Jews could not have understood prior to the New Testament. And yet, this New Testament reality sheds light on an otherwise very confusing uh, Old Testament text like Psalm 110. And so that's the exposition of the text in front of us. Jesus is uh, asking this question, pressing the people to see who he really was. And uh, they were ultimately silenced. They had no answer to this. Now, I want to transition here to ask, why does any of this matter? Uh, why is it important to understand something like the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ or the Trinity, things like that? Uh, isn't it enough to just say we worship God without necessarily getting into all of that obscure doctrinal stuff? Uh, well, no, it's not, because our doctrine affects our worship. Uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, the hour is coming and, now, uh, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. He wants us to know him and to worship him as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. So part of loving someone and honoring them is learning about them. A part of loving my wife is actually getting to know her and learning things about her. Uh, one day, a couple of weeks ago, I got my wife a coffee, surprised her at work, 
And I know her order. It's a medium cold brew with mocha and cream. I don't know anybody else's coffee order, uh, but I know hers because she's my wife. Uh, Part of loving her is knowing things about her. I know what she likes, what she dislikes. I can tell her moods, usually. Uh, Things I, I didn't understand when we were just dating, I've come to know about her. That's part of loving someone. You really can't claim to love someone that you know little to nothing about and you have no interest in getting to know better. And so we cannot love a God who we make no effort to get to know. A Christianity that is muddy or fuzzy on doctrinal matters is dishonoring to the very God that it claims to worship. All Christians are called, in other words, to study theology. Uh, It doesn't mean that we're called necessarily to stand up and teach the Bible at church, uh, but all of us are to learn and grow in our understanding of God and his word. In fact, I would say it's one of the most important things in your life. If you're not growing in your knowledge of God and his word, it doesn't matter what other great things you might be doing, you're not pleasing God. If you're thinking to yourself, does he have Bible to back up that statement? Of course I do. Uh, Don't you even know me by now? Matthew 22, verse 36 Somebody comes up to Jesus, they asked him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, this is a pretty ultimate question. Uh, They're asking Jesus, the Son of God, what is the most important command in all of the Bible? And the problem with familiar passages like this is sometimes we really don't pay attention uh, to them like like we do the first time we read them before, right? Uh, But think about this. Jesus is about to tell us what is the greatest verse in the Old Testament, the most important command of them all. I really want to hear his answer. Verse 37, here it is. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Total love, total devotion to God. That is the most important command in all of the Old Testament. And part of that is loving God with all your mind. That's theology. That's studying God. That's studying his word. That's learning and growing in our understanding of doctrine. You can't really love God with all of your heart until you love him with all of your mind. In other words, you'll just be having an emotional, fuzzy feeling about an image of God you've created in your own mind if it's all emotion and not mental, if there's no um, knowledge of who God is. Loving God as he is starts by learning about him from what he's told us about himself. And too many Christians have a one-way relationship with God. Uh, maybe you have a friend or relative who's, whenever you talk to them, they're so busy talking, you really never get to say anything. And uh, by the end of an hour-long phone conversation, you know everything about their life, uh, but they've learned nothing about you because they weren't listening. That's how some of us are with God. We pray and we tell him all about us, but rarely do we open his word and learn what he has to say to us about himself. For others of us, it's awkward maybe to pray. Because we don't really know God. We don't really know the one to whom we're talking. And we wonder why our lives are unsatisfying. It's because we're ignoring the greatest command in the Bible. The first, the preeminent command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. This is what Christians are called to. And so a doctrine like uh, the hypostatic union of Christ, as obscure and theological as it may seem, it's important for us to know because it's part of loving God. Studying theology is part of worshiping God truly, and that is ultimately what we were created for, to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, we need to acknowledge the reality that we're never going to have perfect knowledge of God in this life. This is one of the frustrating things maybe about being a Christian sometimes, is that there are some questions we will never have perfect, uh, clear answers for in this life. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In other words, when we see Christ, we will uh, see God and we will know him more fully then than it is possible for us to now. We're seeing through a mirror dimly right now. But in this life, we do have a Bible uh, that contains everything that God wants us to know about himself. And it's our job to learn and to study what he has revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there are secret things. There are things that belong to God alone, uh, things that he knows and has chosen not to explain to us. When people ask questions about God's sovereignty and human free will, for example, or uh, why would a good and powerful God allow evil to exist? Those are complex questions. And at the end of the day, uh, sometimes we have to simply say, we don't really know how it all works. We believe what God has told us and we humbly accept the fact that there will always be things we cannot know fully. As Augustine said, if I could fully understand him, he wouldn't be God. And this brings up an important distinction in the subject of theological questions. There is a difference between a sincere question uh, asked about a, a topic where you just want to understand something better, as opposed to what the religious leaders are doing here in Luke 20. If you have an honest question about God or about the resurrection or whether or not Christians ought to do this or that, uh, those are the kinds of questions that are good for us to ask and good for us to search scriptures for answers. But there is a kind of question that really is putting God on trial. Now, there's a difference, in other words, between asking God questions and questioning God. Uh, there's a difference between looking at scripture for answers to a question and questioning what scripture says. And what these religious leaders are doing in Luke 20 is that last kind. They're, these are not sincere questions. These are challenges. Our attitude as followers of Christ ought to be one of humble submission. I believe God's word. I trust God. I recognize that I cannot know everything. All of my questions won't be answered fully. But that shouldn't keep us from seeking to grow in our understanding of the revealed things. Again, that verse says there's some secret things that belong to God alone that we will never fully understand. But there are some revealed things. You know, There are things that God has opened up to us in Scripture and told us about himself. And those things are for us. We ought to be studying and learning and obeying them. This should be our attitude, a thirst to learn and to submit our lives to what God has said. Uh, Peter wrote in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from be being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the very end of this very same letter, Peter says, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The more that you learn about God, the more you will learn how to please him. And this ought to be the pursuit of every true Christian. 
growing in our knowledge of God and growing in our love for him more, to live in a way that is pleasing to him. So often people focus on one aspect of that or the other. Some Christians are uh, doctrinal eggheads. They can answer all of your theological questions, uh, but they live like the devil. There's no holiness. There's no separation from the world. There's no devotion to God. It's just information. Other, other Christians want a practical Christianity. Tell me what to do and not to do. Uh, how does this verse apply to me? And I, I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad question to ask. Uh, we ought to be looking at Scripture and saying, does this apply to me? How should this affect my life? But in some cases, maybe this particular text doesn't apply to you. Maybe it's just something that God wants us to know about him. Maybe it doesn't affect what you do today, aside from knowing and worshiping God more truly. And maybe there's really nothing that could be more important than that. 